Hi, everyone. Welcome to episode 356 of our Tick Bootcamp podcast. The title of today's interview is Vegas Clinic, an interview with Dr. Stephanie Conestrero. Today, Rich and I delve deep into the world of functional medicine with Dr. Steph, where she teaches us everything she's learned as a result of her chronic Lyme disease journey. She had to learn on her own how to overcome the symptoms of Lyme disease before she even realized it was a tick-borne illness. Once she realized she had Lyme disease, she was able to fine-tune her treatment, get herself better, and today she's treating people all over the world to help them overcome their chronic Lyme disease journeys. We've interviewed a lot of people on this podcast, but this is one of the most insightful podcasts we've ever done with specific tips, tricks, and healing modalities you can use in your own journey. So we're really excited to introduce Dr. Stephanie Canestrero. Dr. Stephanie Canestrero, welcome to the Tick Bootcamp Podcast. Thanks for having me. I'm excited to be here. And we're excited to have you here too. Uh, it's been a long time since we've wanted to have you on. And, you know, we are uh, we are very, very fascinated with the work that you're doing, in particular with the vagus nerve. But that's a preview. We don't want to get there too soon. But we are really, really excited to talk with you about, uh, about the brain, about the the gut as a second brain about the the vagus nerve and all the great work that you've been doing there. But again, that's just a preview. Let's talk a little bit about you. So Dr. Stephanie, talk to us about where you are and what is the name of your practice? So I'm, I mean, I'm living in Canada, but I see everyone because we do a lot of virtual work and we're pretty mobile because I'm actually a chiropractor by trade, got into functional medicine because of my own journey with Lyme. But my clinic's called the Vegas Clinic because early in my career or early in my journey, I got sick and my, I always said my brain was hijacked. And at that time, I didn't even realize it was Lyme, but I focused on my gut and healed myself somehow, right? And then only recently getting Lyme or reactivating Lyme did I realize what it was. But that's why I really got into the gut brain connection is because I was having all these gastrointestinal issues. And then it turned into neurological issues. I didn't know it was Lyme at the time. And then the vagus nerve is that direct gut brain connection. So vagus clinic, it was. All right. So that's really cool. So um, let's walk back a little bit into uh, into your history and your so talk to folks a little bit about where you grew up and what kinds of things you were interested in and how that ultimately led you to the healing arts. So I always knew I wanted to be a doctor, but in my mind, that was a medical doctor. And it wasn't until I was in in university. I grew up in in Toronto. I was at I finished Western and then I did. I didn't know what I wanted to do yet because I wasn't sure about the whole medical profession. So I started working at like the BC cancer agency and, um, and cause I was going to school in Victoria at the time at UVic. And I just thought this makes no sense to me. Like nothing is coming together. Like these people don't understand the body. And then that's when I found who ended up being my mentor, this chiropractor who did understand the body and he was using acupuncture and different herbs and all these different things. And people were flying from all over to see him and to be healed by him. And, and, and then I, that's like, I went into chiropractic college, like knowing that I was going to kind of practice the way that he did. You said, I want to be like him. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. But it so, wasn't until the end of my chiropractic college where you don't learn anything about Lyme or you really don't know how the body functions. At least they taught a lot about like pharmacology. They talked about 
you know, like the real basics, but like they don't, they don't teach Lyme even in, in chiropractic college, not at the time that I was there. So at the end of school is when I got sick. It was my last year, but we'll get into that. You were going to ask me something. So talk to us about your health. I mean, as, as a child, were you sickly? Were you, you know, what, what was your health journey like before you had, had, uh, had finally gotten chronically ill? Uh, what was, what was your health like? So like when my parents tell me about when I was a baby, I even had, I was like, kind of like, I wasn't sick, but I was always like, I had these huge rashes or like, you know, they, I was sensitive to everything. So like I could only wear cloth diapers. I couldn't drink from plastic bottles. My face would blow up. So like it started off like that. And then my childhood was pretty normal until I was in like my, I was about 12 years old and that's when all the gastrointestinal stuff started happening. And I had a lot of problems with my stomach, which no one really um, ever helped me with, you know, just ebbed and flowed, ebbed and flowed, but I was prone to like a little bit of anxiety, but nothing like nothing crazy um, until, like I said, university is when it got kind of bad. But then in chiropractic college, that's when I was tentatively diagnosed with multiple sclerosis, which we all know you know, Lyme can mimic MS and even cause lesions in the brain, like as it can cross the blood brain barrier. So I didn't know that at the time, but um, it acutely turned on for me. And a few things had happened at that time. So I don't, I didn't get bit by a tick. So, well, you know, let's pause there. Let's, yeah. That's an important point to pause on, Dr. <laughs> so, so in the context of your childhood and ultimately leading up to uh, the time you went to university, we call that college here in the U.S. When you went to went to uh, yeah. university, um, were you an outdoorsy kid? No, uh, not at all. Like, I mean, I'd go to the beach and stuff, but I wasn't like hiking in forests or like I, I was outside, but it wasn't like hugely. But there, there are other things like where I realized what or when I think I got infected, and it, 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 I was bit by bed bugs, but also spirochetes can live in your mouth. Right. So I got dry socket. And so at that same time I had got bitten by bed bugs It ended up being infested in this, the building college building. <laughs> so, or a chiropractic college building. So we like, and then that's when I learned that there's multiple other vectors that can carry Lyme and co-infections. It could have been that I got bit by a nymph tick and I never saw it, but I, I don't know. I just, it was just like the timing and the research that I did afterwards that I could have been infected in those multiple other ways or in utero. I know that there's, you know, yeah. I, I understand, but to me, like intuitively, that's when I feel like I like got really sick and there was, there's always a few compounding factors, right? For sure. So, so, yeah. um, during your childhood, did you have companion animals, cats, dogs, any, any, anything coming in and out of your house? No, we had a, we had a bunny rabbit that stayed inside. And then I, we had a dog later on, but I was already away at school. Like, so I don't know, it could have been, but. It almost sounds like you were like the kid in the bubble until you went off to university. And then finally we started letting you out and you started coming in contact with all kinds of things that could result in you getting, getting yeah. sick. So, all right. So when they let you out of the Panastrero family bubble and you finally went to university <laughs> and then to chiropractic school, um, you, you started to get really sick, right? So you yeah. think, you think there was some other vector that ultimately transmitted the Lyme to you because that's when you started to get what you were calling acutely sick, right? Well, 
Yeah. And, and just like I said, like now that the more that I've studied, you can get Lyme from mosquitoes, from fleas, from different bites. Right. So well, I'm just saying, I don't, I never had ticks stuck on me. That's all. It could have been a nymph tick. It could have been a different vector, but it wasn't obvious like that is my kind of point. So, but you know, one of the things we, and we love to debate, especially with you medical professionals about this, because I think it's something we need to think through, because I think there is the belief in the Lyme community that, uh, that you can get Lyme disease from a mosquito, or you can get Lyme disease from a bed bug or something like that. I'm not so sure that's true. Uh, and it's not to say that those other vectors do not harbor uh, the bacteria. I think they can, um, but it doesn't necessarily mean that they can pass it on to us, right? And what I mean by that is there's something unique about tick spit that, oh, that of course, yeah. suppresses our immune defenses and because it suppresses our immune system and then also superpowers the Lyme bacteria and puts the Lyme bacteria in a position where it is flooding into our system only from a tick. So- um, you know, I, but, I, I, but there I, are other things like being in molds that can lower your immune system. And then sure. you get bit by something else that harbors this, you know, there's, and there are spirochetes that live in your mouth. Like, and so dry socket is one of the risk factors. Of, well, sure, but how, how, so let's talk about that. Can you define so, dry socket? I'm sorry. I just, you said it again and I'm, I have no idea what that means. Dry socket, like when you get your wisdom teeth out or a tooth pulled, right? They like, it, it starts to seal up with a scab. Dry socket's when the scab breaks and it creates like a vacuum and there's literally access from your mouth saliva into like the wound it directly into your bloodstream and into the nerves. And, and, and it's like one of the complications to dental work. And I had that complication. So, so we, you know, we, he, we here at Tick Bootcamp talk about upstream and downstream, um, you know, Lyme disease, right? So generally the, the, you know, the, the, the upstream is, is going to be a tick bite, right? And, and, and the tick is a unique, has a unique relationship with the spirochete and it has a unique um, capacity to limit our, our immune defenses and superpower the Lyme bacteria and put the Lyme bacteria in a position where it can flood into our system in a way that, you would not find with other uh, with other vectors, um, but the downstream piece of this, of course, is it could be sexually transmitted, it could be congenitally uh, transmitted, and it could be transmitted through a through a uh, through um, a uh, blood transfusion, right? Which is, I think, if you're looking at the the sort of the 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 most likely ways that people are going to get infected, it's going to be one of those four. But it's always. I think almost always going to start with a tick bite. At least that's my opinion, and, and I, I'd love to debate this with you a little bit more. Um, but the you know the the this 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 dry socket issue is something that's interesting because I think that might increase the likelihood of sexual transmission of of Lyme because if you're having if you're 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 swapping spit with somebody that you're in an intimate relationship with and you have this dry socket issue, it seems to me that that might be something we have to explore a little bit more because that might be a way where you're more vulnerable to uh, sexual transmission or at least intimate yeah. transmission. Yeah. Yeah. Like I said, I think just having the bacteria in you, however it got there, and then it's like a perfect storm that happens when you get bit by a tick. It's like the perfect storm is already happening because of the mechanism you just explained. Um, but like, needless to say, I could have been bit by a tick. It just was never obvious to me. That's all. Okay. But I mean, the other thing that seems possible in, you know, in, in the conversation, which is one of the reasons why we like to look back at childhood illnesses is it looks like you may have even been congenitally, 
Um, yeah, totally. Infected because you had, for example, a lot of rashes, right? You had a lot of allergies. Sounds sounds like you were having these immune system issues yeah. at a very, very young age, mm-hmm. which suggests that that's something else that we would have to think through when yeah. trying to come up with with a, with the genesis. If if a genesis is significant, and, right? I mean, yeah. And I have I have considered that as well. It's just you know, just as I'm talking about a perfect storm when I'm stressed at the end of school and then your immune system goes, like that's when they come out. Like just like in November, 2021, where I was, no, I don't, I don't know what you're going to think about my other theory, but I've done a lot of research into the new rollout of 5G millimeter waves and what it does to our cells increasing the influx of calcium, stressing our bodies, like affecting our DNA, oxidative stress, because I was actually in Las Vegas when this happened to me, staying downtown. And I, um, I was so electric. Like that was one of my first things. Like my hair was standing on end. I was shocking everyone. My heart went crazy all of the, the whole nine yards. And then I started researching the, the new rollout of, of 5g. And what I, what I found was in Vegas, they also have something called 5g plus, and I was in those stadiums that had that. So I, I think, you know, and it's always a perfect storm, but I feel like a lot of people it's getting turned back on. And I know there's COVID and I know some people react to the COVID vaccine. And I know that there's all of these other reasons that kind of, but that is like a big thing as to why I think I went from feeling super healthy because I'd been working on myself and working on if there were Lyme co-infections and all of this previously and feeling, I said two weeks before my Lyme turned on that I feel the healthiest I have in my adult life. Now I wish I bit my tongue and it really, you know, one of those things where you're like, yeah. So regardless, it's, uh, it was, it was a journey because at this time, now I had Lyme turn on acutely infect my whole body. And now I knew what was going on. So I could learn a lot about how to help my patients. Dr. Steph, I'm going to jump in because I have have so many questions for you, right? As a doctor. So just to validate everything you're saying and ask you to expand upon that for our listeners, we've, we've read articles and interviewed people that have been so sensitive to EMFs and to electric electricity and things like that, where they've literally had to move from their homes because they had dirty electric in their home. They've yeah. literally, I mean, the Alex Hudson Foundation, a really sad story. I don't know if you know uh, the Jody, Jody Hudson and the Alex Hudson Lyme Foundation. She passed away from complications, you know, MCAS and complications related to Lyme disease. And when we interviewed Jody, who's now the founder of the Alex Hudson Lyme Foundation, she said that when they were able to reduce the EMFs in their home, get rid of the, the Wi-Fi, you know, cut back on, on all the EMFs, her daughter felt a lot better. There was almost like a, a rebound for her before, you know, she got a little bit worse. So why is that scientifically? From your experience as a doctor, why do you believe these frequencies, these, these electromagnetic frequencies are having such a harmful effect on our cells? Because it's very in line with what like Dr. Roll says, for example, where our cells are the root of our health and our cellular health is super important for us to have a healthy body as a whole, right? So can you give us more more meat on the bone for that topic? Yeah, so from my understanding and even from what I've seen now in recently in people's blood work and in and my own that kind of got me looking into it or, or researching it is the effect that it has on, on calcium, on our voltage-gated calcium channels. So, you know, 
think about calcium, like when someone has like something going on with their heart, right? They get put on beta blockers, which are calcium channel blockers, but now we have them like hyperactivated, right? And so they're, the voltage, the channels are open, calcium, too much calcium is entering the cell, cell gets damaged, cell starts leaking out particles, body has to clear with that. So we're getting extra stress. So now we now know, okay, also when electromagnetic frequencies are released uh, in the and there's mold, mold is getting stronger, 600 times more spores, like according to Dr. Wait, Thomas Rao. EMFs make mold stronger, 600 times stronger, you're saying? 600 times stronger, more spores that they're making, which are the things that negatively affect a lot of Wild. people, Holy right? Cow. So, so now if you have mold in your body, which turns out I had mold in my sinus cavities, like right now I'm stuffed up, but I have cleared them out to the point where I was coughing up gray, like gray mold ball from my, so like all of these things, it's like, I keep saying perfect storm. It's the best way, I guess, to explain it, but it's like something you already have mold molds, decreasing your immune system. It's causing stagnation in your liver. Now you're getting this external new frequency that's oxidizing your cell. It's, you know, and anyone that has skin damage, like what, cause you've had rashes before you it affects the top layers the most. So more rashes are coming out. Like that's part of the, the, they, there's a lot of case studies for people who were like living right beside, like they're called 5g base camps, like where there was a lot of radiation and they have like full blown radiation sickness. And a lot of it is like, you know, hair falling out, skin rashes everywhere. So, you know, whenever you have like a breach in the barrier, like those are the weaker barriers at that time. So, and then the effects that the protective skin layer have as they're damaged, then it's adding more to that perfect storm. Right. And then, and then people can't regulate the calcium. So your calcium is getting everything's getting sludgier. So, you know, the body's kicking calcium out into the tissue that's causing pain. That's causing stress. The cal the calcium's going into the arteries, you know, coagulation, it's going into the gallbladder, like, and, and then your body's inundated with all of these problems and then Lyme. And we know, like, you know, they become active. They, they're, they see that your immune system's dropping and they come out of their little dormant stages. And, and I'm, I'm testing people who were, you know, never had issues with Lyme before. And I, specifically I was in Las Vegas and on that team, I was working with the, and like a lot of the players on the NHL team, there was like, I think like 14 heart events. Cause your heart is electric. Your heart has like, that's what, and they're all having tachycardia, like chest pain, like and, you know, there's also the whole vaccine side, the COVID thing. I understand that, but I just, I know that it's a huge part of it as well. And when you look at their calcium, what was their calcium? Calcium high, potassium low. Um, then what happens? Albumin increases to try to bind onto the calcium. LDL goes super high to, it acts like a binder to bind onto the calcium to get the waste. Right. So that's what I'm seeing in all of them. Like it's in, and myself and you know, like these borderline, like troponin levels, like all of these kind of stressors on the body. And, and it's just creating, like I said, this, this storm, like it turned on in so many people. And there was one girl in the West coast. She was sick before, like I was, was completely fine. That same night, November 21st, 2021, it happened to her where her heart went crazy. That's what happened this time. It was cardiovascular symptoms for me before when I had Lyme, it was all neurological. So, you know, I had Bell's palsy. I had the numbness. I had the sense of impending doom. I had severe anxiety. I had night terrors. I had all of that, but I never had the heart symptoms that I had this time. And, and then 
the car, the cardiologist that, that I saw that this top cardiologist, he puts a wireless heart monitor on my heart. That's already crazy. So my hair is like this and I'm so desperate at this time. It doesn't even click to me. Like don't put Bluetooth through your heart. And he put that on me. I short circuited it. They still want me to pay thousands of dollars for it. It made my symptoms feel like I felt like my body was going to try and get a hold of this. And then right when I put that on heart attack symptoms fainted, like, and then it just went everywhere in my body. My kidneys got sore, my liver, my eyeballs, my like, you name it, like the, the sharp pains all in the joints, the shin pain, shortness of breath, chest pain, pain into the back, gallbladder, like radiation up the neck. Like I'm telling you, like just the whole Dr. Dr. Steph, why do you think, why do you think the second time you either a were reinfected or B had Lyme reactivated your body that you had these cardiac symptoms that you didn't have initially, right? Do you think it was a different strain from a different tick bite? Or do you think that you now had additional maybe toxins that yeah. coupled together with the bacteria, you know, triggered the cardiac symptoms that you didn't have the first time, right? Yeah. Yeah. And I think that part of that was like the, the new electromagnetic frequencies. I'd never like had heart issues in my life. Nothing. This, this is so smart. I mean, you you you're, you're, the way you just so brilliantly described this event is something that we've not heard before. And we're always trying to figure out, you know, what is this, what is this event that takes you from managing these polymicrobes that you have in your system to not being able to manage it anymore, right? Because what we what we've learned from Dr. Rawls, Dr. Phillips, and some of the other experts that we that we've um, interviewed is that um, it's very rare that somebody goes from a tick bite to chronic illness, that there's generally, there's generally some gap in time. Now, there are some cases where, where people who are living in a high mold environment, as you had pointed out before, uh, and they get bitten by a tick, well, they're so immunocompromised that they will get chronically ill. Mm -hmm. uh, there are some people that you know, are, are under a very high stress moment in their lives and they get yeah. bitten by a tick and they become chronically ill, but that's very, very rare. In yeah. most cases, there's a long gap in time between a tick bite and an illness, and it is, as you were pointing out, these different types of stresses, but no one has really given us uh, an understanding of how um, how the, the, the and, and again, I'm, I'm, I'm actually working, I want to share with our listeners and with you that I'm working on a blog on the electron, right? And uh, I had read an article in New York Times about the, the electron, and they were talking about the biome, and, and now the electron, and, we, and because we're energetic beings, and because uh, you know, we, we, we are electrical beings that, you know, that it's really important for us to be looking at electron therapy therapy as part of treating illnesses. Right. And now you've just given us a really, really powerful explanation about how there are just so many different factors that are causing us to have distress and what impact that the, that the electron uh, is having it, having on, for example, mold. So you could have mold, your body could be managing old mold, and then you could have this, 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 um, 5G or 5G plus or some other some other um, uh, issue that's now not only just suppressing our immune system because you know because we're being energetically overwhelmed, but it's actually helping some of the things that we're managing to ultimately become more viral. And 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 you also su suggested, and I think this is really powerful, that what's essentially happening is as all of these things are growing. We're, we're becoming toxic. And as we're becoming toxic, um, our body loses the ability to ultimately ultimately kill off these uh, bugs. And then of course, when, when our body is killing off these bugs, it's adding to the toxicity and it's making us even more immunocompromised. Mm -hmm. 
And then people's lymph is blocked up. Like it can't clear it. Like we can't clear it. I had lymphedema so bad that like my breast was a double D and I got B's, you know? So like I was just jammed like my right, my right groin, like I had choke points and, and I do manual therapy. So these choke points, when you open them up for people, you're going to help them get better faster. And, and, you know, I was bedridden in December, um, November, December, January, February. Right. And like the reasons I think I could get better fairly fast when it comes from a lot, like other than having the knowledge I have and, you know, having all these smart doctors that are also my friends when my brain's not working, like helping me to do the things I need to do and do them fast and trying out all these different therapies like that. But part of the thing for me were those choke points, opening up those choke points, the relief I got was like, I can't even explain it. Like, what does that mean? Choke points? Like these are, these are lymphatic swollen lymph nodes that you have to manually release. Is that, or am I totally misunderstanding? Manually or, or a big thing for me was neural therapy. So I don't know if anyone's talked to you about neural therapy in Lyme, but neural therapy, what it does, it's, it's procaine. Like, and there's different things that you can use neural therapy, like injections. Sometimes they add homeopathics. Um, Sometimes people use lidocaine, but generally it's procaine, right? So it's like the more natural kind of, um, precursor to lidocaine, all the things they use when they freeze your mouth. And essentially when you inject spots with that, it, so there's, there's a couple ways that it works. It actually numbs the area. So it kind of shuts down like the tension, like in the actual cells, but it also like the effect that the actual, like, if you've ever tasted it, it's bitter. It turns into like B vitamins in your body. It, it, um, it switches your polarity. So your polarity goes off. So it works on the frequency as well. And, and, and if you learn about the lymph system, we, people used to think it was just like pumped by moving your muscles, but it's not, it's electricity that's moving it, our own frequency. Right. So it helps that frequency change. So you can drain essentially. And I'm telling you when, when this happened, I had, I got along my collarbone, um, and around my, Rest, I had injected with neural therapy and my heart started going like pow, 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 like palping, like so many palps. Like I thought it was bad. I was like, thought I was going to keel over. But what I noticed is as the palps were happening, my, my whole, the lymph was draining. And then wow. by the time the next day they were equal, like, so it it's, it Wait, was wild. Dr. Seth, can you talk about, I just don't want to lose, cause you are so smart. I want you to touch on one other point. The fact that you said the lymph is moved by electricity Generally, we're taught that the limb system doesn't have a pump. It doesn't move. And it only moves by, you know, exercise, right? Jumping mm-hmm. on a trampoline, which is why these tra- mini trampolines are so popular. Or, you know, jumping up and down or jumping jacks, things like that. Can you just tell us more about the concept right, of electricity moving the limb system? Because that's really fascinating. So has anyone talked to you guys about, like, the fourth phase of water, like, and how the heart's not just a pump? No. So it's almost like um, when we're healthy and water, like, even, like, and, you know, when people talk about structuring water, because yep. it like it has its own kind of frequency. So our body, when it's healthy, our, our, our the liquid in us is almost kind of like gel-like and has a frequency. And that is what that frequency is what's helping move not only our lymph, but our actual blood. Like the heart is they the it was the what book did I just read on the heart where they they did a really good explanation? It's called Understanding the Heart. That's what it's called. And they explained like how big the heart would be have to be if it was, that was solely the thing that was pumping the, the blood around your body. So if you start researching the fourth phase of water, it starts to make more sense, but it's these, 
in like, you know, have you ever had like, there's lymph therapy where it's those wands, there's like glass and it, it's like electric. That's one of the other best ways to move your lymph because it is electricity and your electricity goes off. So how much more does that make you think, okay, new magnetic millimeter waves we've never been exposed to, we haven't adapted to how they could affect us. Cause think about if our lymph now slows down, we're not clearing stuff. That is a big part of why people Lyme gets turned back on. If you keep the body moving, if you keep the fluid mechanics in the body moving, people don't get sick. It's when you have I call them choke points or, you know, like uh, dams in your body, which that's why a lot of the times it'll be joints that are sore because they're not getting the fluid moved out. They don't have like the blood flow or the, the, and so joints will be like kind of places where people feel pain, but choke points, if you can open up a choke point for someone who's sick or suffering Lyme and, and, and you're skilled enough to see what those are, but I mean, really you can just look where, you know, all the lymph nodes collect. And if you can open those parts up and there's a lot of creams that you can use that, um, an ingredient in a certain probiotic it's G GP math. G have you guys heard of that? Yeah. So that will, um, you can place that on like the different lymph node areas and it helps clear it out. Cause it gets absorbed castor oil. Castor oil was slathered on my chest the entire time. It helped clear out when I was having chest inflammation it, and it helps move smooth muscle. It helps anti-inflammatory. It lets the lymph move. So that's been like huge for me feeling that myself, because now I know how important it is for my patients. And I didn't quite understand that because it, you know, when I first got sick, first of all, I wasn't as sick. It wasn't and my body was maybe younger, healed faster. I'm not sure, but I got out of it without even knowing it was Lyme at that point in time, right? So let's but, let's let's pause there for a second. So so you believe that your chronic illness occurred as a result of you being in close proximity to 5G plus, and what that did was it ultimately affected your electrome in a way that prevented your 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 um, lymph system from moving, having the electrical yeah. fields necessary to move. And then you ultimately got backed up. Now, of course, we know that the lymph nodes are, of course, an important part of our, of our immune defense, because that's where, that's where, um, where a lot of the, uh, the, the response to new microbes is, is developed by the immune system. And so there's two things going on here. One is, one is you're, you're getting, you're, you're getting, toxic and two it's interfering with the capacity of the lymph nodes to do what they do in the immune process exactly and then that's part of the perfect storm but the week before i had been exposed to mold of which i was sensitive and there was a little bit of like well there ended up being a lot in my sinuses because i touched on it quickly but also like clearing the sinuses or you know clearing out mold um, or getting out of mold lowering your emf exposure all of that is big part of helping the people I'm working with heal. And so are, you know, removing uh, old root canals or, or, or looking at the patency of the airways. And, you know, all of those things have to be kind of addressed because, you know, people are like, well, you know, why do I have to do that? I had this before and I wasn't sick. And it's like, but once you've hit the tipping point, I mean, you, you, right. You went, yeah. So when you go from subclinical to clinical, there was still lots of problems going on when you were subclinical, subclinical, you have all these stuff going on, but you're not showing symptoms. Right. So once you, once you go over there and the whole uh, shit storm, am I allowed to say that happens yeah. in your body, 
then it's like you have to optimize things that you didn't even know you had to optimize to get fully better. And you have to take the load off your body so it feels safe and not under attack where it can actually heal. And that's where a lot of the vagus nerve stuff, I think, helped me as well, right? Before we get there, I have a question for you. Could you touch on a few things, Dr. Steph, that I want to focus on? So you mentioned you were sensitive to mold. And a lot of our listeners, you know, we understand that it's not just Lyme. You gave us a bazillion things to look at as well. But what are some good tests you recommend? I mean, for example, what do you think about genetics? We had Dr. Miller on and he talked about there's genetic tests to see if you're more susceptible to EMS and electromagnetic fields. There's genetic testing to see if if you're more susceptible to mold, uh, more susceptible to things like autoimmune disease, right? So do you think think that's part of the picture to, to get good data points? Or do you think that's not as important as maybe other people put, you know, an emphasis on it with, you know? I, I'm not, I don't emphasize that because first of all, like epigenetics are what turn things on. So I want to see, do you have mold? Cause it doesn't, you don't have to have the gene to be sensitive to mold and you can be sensitive to mold. Like, just like you don't have to have the gene for celiac disease to get celiac. Although they say they won't call it that if you don't have like that gene. So to me, like, let's say, okay, if you have all the money in the world that you can put your financially into your healing or, and you just are super interested, then I'd say, then that's a big part. But to me, like being in the trenches, being the one sick, what's it going to tell me? How am I, how is that going to help me at that exact point in time? It's not, it's not going to help me. I want to know what strain of mold I have, what binder is going to bind that mold. Like, how do I get it out? How do I modulate my immune system? How do I support my, my nervous system to get me out of this terrible thing that I'm going through? Right. So it doesn't, it doesn't matter to me at the end of the day. And I see people getting better that are really sick and have been sick for a long time without knowing their genetics. Right now. I think it's interesting. I've done my genetics. Like I'm not against it by any means, but like, if you don't have like the money to do that, then I'm going to look at like, you know, a co-infection test that's, that's on the, on the ball. Like, like I use vibrant labs, but there's, um, hygienics, there's, um, DNA connections. There's different ones. And, and I just like vibrant vibrant is what I ended up doing for me. I worked through the co-infections based on that. while also supporting my lymphatic system and supporting my nervous system, you know, all the little pieces of the pie that you have to do in order to heal. Um, but, and, and, and even going through it this time, I learned less about kill, 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 but there's a big modulate, 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 modulate the immune system, right? The immune system wants to tip a certain way. If you can get it going the other way or, or balancing, then you have a better chance of clearing it out and keeping it clear. Um, so I don't know if I answered your question, but you did. And I think it leads me to my next question though, which is, we had Dr. Marty Rawson, who who gave us a controversial view that I think really makes sense. And I'm curious to get your views on it. He said he has Lyme patients that come in that he knows has Lyme, they have Lyme disease for sure, but he realizes there are other things going on. Maybe there's an overgrowth bacteria in their gut. Maybe they they have uh, they, they live in a moldy home. And yeah. as soon as they move into that moldy home, they got really sick. And he goes, that was the trigger point. And I addressed those things. And once mm-hmm. I can get rid of the, you know, the, the, the fungus in their gut, or once I can get rid of the moldy environment and clear out the mold mycotoxins in their bloodstream, then they get better. He goes, because their immune system will manage the Lyme bacteria on its own. If you can remove the stronger things that are weakening your body. I mean, now that's pretty powerful to think that I have Lyme disease. I don't have to treat it. I can treat something else. And my immune system will then, you know, when, you know, come in to, to, to win it over (laughs) at the end of the day. Right. I mean, what are your views on that? Do you think that's a a real 
thing? So I, I think it, I think it, I think it depends, but so for me, what I didn't mention is we're always testing the gut and working on the gut. Like the, like when we test the gut and we have access to the gut, right. We can take things into our gut, remodulate the gut. The gut is like literally managing your immune system. All the toxins from your body are getting dumped into your gut, you know? So it's, it's definitely like a huge part. You want to take them away from the trigger. We always assess those things, but sometimes like once you've already got sick, even taking the person out of the trigger, it's still not enough. You have to manage the infection depending on the person. So, I mean, for me, I was trying to manage without doing antibiotics. Like I was trying to do all natural, but I was really acute and my heart was getting worse. So I ended up taking doxycycline in my acute kind of stage. And it really, it really helps me, but it doesn't help people when you do that, when they're chronic, like I've tried, I've worked with people who have tried, like there's, you have to work on literally all the other things. Sometimes it makes them worse. It doesn't even touch it. It pushes it deeper. So like, but define acute yeah. because you, you, you potentially could have been born with Lyme, right? And maybe you got it earlier. So yeah. when you say acute, do you mean like an active re an acute an active flare, flare? Okay. an acute flare, gotcha. a, a reactivation, so to speak. Right. Like, yep. yeah. So I wouldn't consider myself. Okay. I only retrospectively was like, wow, I think I had Lyme in 2009, right? No one ever, I, I was told I had a, I had a multiple sclerosis tentative diagnosis. Cause I didn't have enough plaques that it was an actual diagnosis. I got diagnosed with celiac disease at the same time because I was having all these gut symptoms. And, you know, I worked backwards thinking I worked on parasites in my gut. I, I moved out of the place like with bed bugs, like my stress was managed and, and I got better from that flare. And I was very sick at that time. And it was less than, it was less time than, than than this time that I got better, but there was a lot of different factors. So yeah, I, I don't think that it always has to be like you kill Lyme, but like I was put on antibiotics at that time because I had this gut infection that they called salmonella. So maybe that helped. So I, you know, it's, I don't have, I, I, I think that you can, will always use herbs or something natural, like to try and lower the Lyme, because once we start getting rid of parasites, getting rid of mold, like parasites, like they house more Lyme. So more gets released. So we got to, we got to do like a zap of the Lyme as well. And then we use a lot of binders because we got to bind up all the toxins that are released. So yeah. And those things are super important. So Dr. Steph, before we get too deep into the geeking out and Matt is just getting way too excited <laughs> to you too far in the geek trail. Let's, uh, let's You'll go be. back to, let's go back to your initial illness and the, and the diagnosis you had, because you've become one of the most well-known experts on the vagus nerve, right? And and you you developed that based on your own personal journey, which you now know was a part of your Lyme journey, but at the time you did not. And this is important. I think we have to develop this together and talk about you know, the, the, the vagus nerve and, 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 and what role that played in you being able to manage your disease, which, which you then didn't know is Lyme, but you now know is Lyme. So talk about that. Talk about, um, you know, your misdiagnoses, Talk about how, um, how, you know, what you learned about yourself and how that brought you to study the gut and the vagus nerve and why that was able to assist you in getting through that, what you're calling the first acute phase of your disease. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So at that time, I mean, I had major gastrointestinal issues, which they just told me was like IBS, like my whole university, it started, you know, 
college for you guys. Then you go to post-grad, which is chiropractic college. So, and again, there were times where it ebbed and flowed, but I got really healthy, like second, third year university, went into chiropractic college, super healthy, all the stressors that came along with, you know, finishing my exams, all the money it costs for chiropractic college were coming to the end. Um, and my grandfather gets really sick. And because I've been working with my mentor, I've met all of these different surgeons and he needs surgery and he's supposed to wait this long time, but then I get him in sooner because, you know, our healthcare is different. It's not, it's like very long waits sometimes. So sometimes it's good who, you know, and, um, and he almost died and I blamed myself. It was this huge stress thing. So he, I helped catch it that he got something called Ogilvy syndrome and that's what saved his life, but it was really touch and go for a little bit. Um, and, um, so that was like my, my stress point, I think. And like, you know, you're not living in the best housing at that time. Like I said, there were bed bugs, which I found dead in my bed. And I had like three bumps where they had bit, which like I threw my mattress out that night. I was like completely grossed out. You know, <laughs> like I said, I had my wisdom teeth out really late. So it was somewhere around there. Um, and then I had to have a root canal. So those things all happened at once, which I didn't know how bad root canals were. Right. I didn't understand. So, um, I'm sitting in a movie theater and that's when it hit me just the way it hit me this time, uh, overwhelming anxiety out of nowhere, the inability to stop moving my legs because they were a deep ache. And that was the start of these crazy neurological symptoms that I had never had before. I woke up with the Bell's palsy, the face completely, um, drooping on the right side. Like luckily mine was transient and I went into the hospital. I thought I was having a stroke. They injected me with the dye, which again, isn't really helpful when you're already sick and then you get radioactive material put into you. So I got worse after that and my face healed, but then my whole right side of my body went numb. Then I had, um, you know, the feeling of bugs crawling over my body. Then I had, um, I had twitches, which then they, you know, investigate it's like benign fasciculation syndrome or some BS like that. And, you know, and then I'm trying to finish chiropractic college and I'm in learning acupuncture and I'm asking all these people, like, do you know what's wrong with me? Like I fainted when they put one needle in me, like my nervous system was just gone and my gut had gotten worse at this time. I had to be hospitalized because I was just going to the washroom blood. Like that's it was coming out. So, you know, then I get treated for that and I'm still like just going through it and no one understands what's going on with me. And I feel terrible and I'm scared half to death. I'm calling my parents in the middle of the night. Like this is it. Like, I'm not going to make it, you know, like I'm getting emotional because it's terrible. And I, I don't even know how I got through it, but school ended. I somehow wrote my boards, got through them, not as well as, or my final exams and, um, you know, moved out of that place and like slowly, like started to be able to reemerge. But then my boss at that time did a parasite cleanse, did a parasite cleanse, thought I was going to die during the parasite cleanse. Cause I didn't open up drainage and all this stuff I knew now. Um, but then as I started getting better, then I, I, that's when I went into functional, functional medicine, which now I feel like I've branched from functional medicine to just like, you know, I don't even know what to call it, but it's like, we're just trying to get to the root cause of like what's going on. And I was working with athletes at that time and they were, it was a lot of concussion stuff. So this was me now looking back going, wow, my brain felt hijacked. I had anxiety before. I'm not an anxiety sufferer. Like it, it took over my brain and my gut was a mess. And I didn't know I had Lyme, but I was like, and that's how like gut brain connection came and that. And we learned about the vagus nerve and 
chiropractic college. And um, I was working with these players who were having concussion symptoms and I started doing functional medicine tests on them. So I just happened to do a test on this one guy and something went wrong with the lab. And they're like, they gave us the results that they did, but there were a few missing. It was an organic acid test. And then they said, you know, um, he can, we're going to send him a whole new kit and he can do it. Well, in between then he got a concussion. So, um, I don't know if you're aware of the organic acid test, but you get some information about what's going on in the gut at that time. So his looked really good, the, all of the markers, because there was just two missing on that one. And that's why we got to redo it after the, the concussion without them charging. And that's why we did it so close together. And oh my gosh, his gut was a mess. Like so much evidence of leaky gut, like his like zonulin through the roof and like, just like a mess. So then I started being like, and he was like having anxiety. He was having like this post-concussive thing that almost, you know, presents like in some ways, like how Lyme people feel. Right. So that was my first kind of aha moment. And I started to kind of build on that. And I started to work on, you know, as I'm manually working on people's necks and doing acupuncture, like I'm working on their gut. I'm clearing out like candida. I'm doing that. And there, and people that had chronic post-concussion started to see me. And, you know, we did things to help the gut lining to lower the toxic load. And then, you know, and then I started to learn about Lyme. I was like, Oh, it sounds like I had Lyme before. Let's start testing these guys for that too. Like that are having this post and it was coming up positive for some of them. So we were using herbs for that and they were getting even better at performing even better at having like these record years. So, um, What can you give us some specifics? So what specific herbs or things were you using to balance the gut when these tests are coming like coming back like crazy bad? What herbs were you using to help these people? And then when you started diagnosing people with Lyme disease, what herbs were you using for Lyme as well? You know, now as you're starting to learn about Lyme disease and the gut. Yeah. So, I mean, I was pretty basic at the, at the beginning I was, because you know, I was just starting my journey in it. And we were using like blends of herbs, like GI microbics from, from designs for health. Um, if they had candida, I was using undeclinic acid or, um, like, um, uh, uh Lauren, like different, like things from coconut oil. Um, I was doing like certain strains of probiotics based on what came up in their gut. I was doing like, so pretty basic then, um, And then once I started learning about Lyme, again, I was using blended products that people had made and sometimes artemisinin on its own, sometimes like um, the high dose garlic, um, like Alimed, sometimes oil of oregano. It kind of depended. I started to use muscle testing to kind of um, pick the herbs or pick what I was using. So um, it would be kind of like a whole blend of things really. And then, but um, I think the big, game changer was when I learned about binders, like all the different types of binders to help bind up the toxicity. And, um, when I started, you know, supporting the liver more or, you know, cause it was all like just this slow thing of me just learning kind of slowly. Like I went to Institute for functional medicine. I did functional medicine university, but then it was like through experience, through mentoring, through that, it just kind of like built. And then, you know, now even, more powerful through my own story. Um, you know, so now I'm using a lot of things that modulate the immune system, like LDAs and LDIs, um, like different homeopathics. What's like, an LDA? So like low dose immunotherapies, what's LDA stand for? Low dose, um, antigens. So, I mean, if low dose immunotherapy is just, if you're gonna, some people use the whole term that low dose immunotherapy for the whole thing, but so like there's, environmental toxins would be like an LDA. So you're giving people toxins or you're giving them chemicals, like really low dose to like the, um, 
with antigens to stimulate their immune system, but it's balancing somehow. Whereas the LDIs low dose immunotherapy would be the, the strep, the, the Babesia, the, the actual infections. That's how I think about it. So, um, yeah. Dr. Seth, can we, can we walk back a little bit for the folks who are new to this podcast or listening to this podcast for the first time? Uh, can you talk a little bit about the gut and the vagus nerve and the, and the connection between the gut and the brain and, and the role that the vagus nerve plays in that process? Yeah. So the vagus nerve is, is cranial nerve 10. So that we have 12 cranial nerves. It's number 10. It's, it's known as the wandering nerve, like Vega, Vegas, Vega bond. Right. So, um, and it's a direct connection from the brain to the actual gut, um, the actual gut lining, um, um, they, all of the enterocytes, they have more nervous system innervation than our whole spinal cord. So that's why people can consider it the second brain. And it's, you said, it again, so you said, you said our gut lining is, has, has more nervous system signals than wow. Yeah. Our enteric nervous system has more nervous system sig- signals than our entire, entire spinal cord, not including the brain. And that can trigger things like anxiety, of course, because our nervous system obviously can have an impact huge. on our hormones and our anxiety and our depression. And, our, and if we're happy or sad, right. So, I mean, that's huge. What you just said. Hugely, hugely. And so there's, there's different ways that like, there's the actual nerves that, that, you know, when there's, when you have a pathogenic microbiome, it's going to, think about what it's going to do to the nervous system of the gut. And then the vagus nerve is taking information from the gut and going up to the brain. That's 80% of what's happening. Right. And then the brain is only 20% downwards where it's affecting what happens in the gut. So our gut is powerful. Like if, if you think about that from the vagus nerve, vagus nerve also innervates the heart. So that's why people use heart rate variability. It it innervates every organ, um, down to the, um, ascending colon. Um, and then the rest is taken over by the, the parasympathetic. Cause it's, it's the rest and digest side of our nervous system. So our sympathetic nervous system is our fight or flight. So that's what gets turned on when we feel we're in danger. And then we're the only mammals, um, that can put ourselves in danger just with our own thoughts. Right. So a lot of us have an imbalanced nervous system. We're always towards the fight or flight, the sympathetic, the even like scrolling all the time, comparing the comparing yourself culture, the uh, like, like just every little thing that we can analyze rumination, right. Thinking back to something, you can think back to something like I just got emotional thinking about the call I made to my parents. Right. Because we can put ourselves back into exact situations and it's like, we're reliving them, but so is our physiology. So I definitely try not to do that. Um, so a lot of like people and like, that's, and it's trauma, right? So you're, and you're, so you go into a fear-based thing, like all of that. So you're trying to switch to your rest and digest. And that's when, you know, that's why you coach someone to be really like, people use gratitude for eating or making sure you have a deep breath. You're sitting down, you're chewing enough, like so that your juices get flowing or else, you know, the vagus nerve is what turns on, like contracts the gallbladder. So then the gallbladder is what spews the bile, body of salts, all of the digestive enzymes into the actual gut so that we can actually break down food. Cause if you think about, even when you don't break down food, food becomes antigens, food becomes what the body sees as invaders, especially when we have like a leaky gut, which is a breach in that barrier and stuff's getting into our bloodstream that our body doesn't recognize, right? Because it's not broken down. So the vagus nerve is in charge of like the stomach acidity, the, the, your gallbladder, the downward movement of your, like being able to poop. So the migrating motor complex, it's that like kind of wave-like motion that's always happening that that's allowing 
it's the way our, our organs like move, right? So it's that's in charge with by the the vagus nerve. And there's lots of things, and that's why like manual stuff is really important for the vagus nerve because if you have like a forward head posture, you're cutting off your your vagus nerve comes right down here. It goes down and behind your sternum. And then it goes down and innervates everything. So what if your head's forward, like, you know, like this, you're cutting off like nerve flow of like one of the most important nerves in your body. Um, so that's where like even manual work comes in or strengthening and posture and your, you know, ergonomically how you're sitting at work, all of these things come into play when you're trying to even heal from Lyme disease like you that. And we use like some vagal nerve stim, like, so there's, you can go as this, there, they used to do an implant on the vagus nerve. And so this is how powerful the vagus nerve is. So they would put an implant. This is when they used to have to cut into the skin and they would put an implant in people who have seizures or are really, really sick as like a last ditch effort. And you could push a button to stimulate your vagus nerve. And what they saw is people were reversing their disease completely just from that, no medication at all. So we have at our fingertips, like literally this powerful nerve that comes superficial here. It's superficial in the ear. We can stim it with frequencies that help you heal. So, um, how do you do that? So what are some tools you can give to our listeners to stimulate the vagus nerves to assist in their healing journey? So there's different things. There's, um, there's actual devices you can buy now and you can stim your vagus nerve from the outside. So you'd find like your, um, carotid, uh, artery by feeling the pulse and you'd go right by it and you put some gel on and you turn it up and it kind of stims it ele electrically without having to put it in. That's like, it's called the gamma core. They have another one now that you can buy for much cheaper that you can just use. Like the other one is more like clinical, like you can, they used to make it. So you had to like rent it from a practitioner. Like it was, it was a little bit more pricey. So, but now they have ones, they have ones that can go on your tragus of your ear. So they attach these little pads, you put the gel on and you, they clip onto your ear tragus. The tragus is right here. This little, little tidbit there. Like the, and like the dangly thing on your ear, right? Yeah. Like, you know, the cartilage where some people get it, get it. Um, yep. Yeah. On the inside. Yep. Yeah. So you can clip it on there and it, it, you can stimulate different Hertz, like, and there's different ones, um, different frequencies that you can use and you can stim it that way. But then there's humming, gargling, gagging, uh, breathing out long exhales, like doing box breathing, but then your exhale is longer than your inhale because the vagus nerve is in charge of our, our exhale. Um, I mean, simple things like chiropractic adjustments are, are proven to turn on the vagus nerve done by people who are talented, um, um, manual therapy where any manual therapy where their feet, hands, scalp, um, massaging their forearms can help turn on your vagus nerve. Um, I mean, there's different essential oils. There's supplements that are stimulating to your vagus nerve. There's some research on what kind of supplements? There's research on omega threes, phosphatidylcholine, anything with choline in it. The um, the neurotransmitter of the vagus nerve is acetylcholine. Um, there's um, bergamot. There's um, GABA, melatonin, um, all of these things that are like calming for us, right? Lemon balm. There's 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 
more that I'm missing right now, but. Oh, you're uh, doing great. You don't have to remember every single one. That's, that's, I mean, you, you've given a great list. So I'd like to bring this back to your experience, right? Because mm -hmm. I, you, you know, you have this really interesting story that, that, that I think we have to now tie this to. So correct me if I'm wrong. If, is it, is, is vagal nerve stimulation um, having an impact on your healing because a majority or a large portion of your immune system is in your gut. And when you are stimulating the, uh, the vagal nerve, at least in those cases where that was successful, what was happening? Was, was, it, was it stimulating your immune system? And because it was stimulating your immune system, that is why in some cases people are able to, um, to uh, overcome their illnesses because of that vagal nerve stimulation. And do you believe that that's what was happening with you before you had your second bout where you became chronically ill, meaning you were able to manage it because you learned about the gut and you learned about the vagal nerve and you learned how to um, use whatever tools you were using to um, to assist your your immune system, your immune system was able to manage the the disease, and and it ma was managed until you had that five G experience. And I'd like to talk about that separately. So if you could just uh, footnote that for a second, a bookmark it for a second, and and talk to us about your first experience of why learning about uh, the vagal nerve in the gut allowed you to manage your disease the first time. Uh, oh no, I was retrospectively for me like I that's what made me think back and go, oh wow, like so. I mean, I think I indirectly affected my vagus nerve by killing the bad bugs in my gut. Cause then the, okay. then the information going back up to my brain and getting out of the mold and all of that, like, that's what I think, um, at that time. And then like, I started utilizing all of the exercises in between then for a lot of other patients and was having success. But the reason why I is it, we talked about frequency and I know we put the EMF one to the side right now, but the frequency of your body and the frequency of your, your, your cells when you're healthy are different than the frequency when you're unhealthy. So you're kind of zapping them into, or like forcing them into a different frequency and what do different frequencies do? Well, we know that bad frequencies can increase bad things, but good frequencies can increase the good bacteria and they push out the bad. So they actually see a change in pathogenic bacteria in the gut from stimming your vagus nerve alone without taking a herb, without taking a probiotic, without changing your diet. So clarify that for power. Power. So you're saying that the that the stimulation of the vagal nerve changes the frequency of the bacteria and changes they, the frequency in the body and 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 it it, it the, the frequency, this better frequency helps the good bacteria to flourish and it actually they kick out the bad bacteria and and it actually kills some of the bad bacteria, molds, whatever, because we know, we know that people can be like, if you think of um, the Rife machine, right? You yeah. use a frequency that wipes out a certain bug, right? We're, we have frequencies. So the vagus nerve being the powerful nerve that it is, is changing the frequency in multiple organs in your body, including your gut. And it is changing the frequency, which then changes from a more pathogenic gut microbiome to a more healthy gut microbiome. What are your views on on the Freemedica device, the the Wave Two? I believe that was what Yolanda Hadid used. And you know, honestly, we've we've heard a lot about it. Some people have had success. Some people have said it's you know not so great. But that's all about electromagnetic frequencies to help <laughs> rebalance, right? So, have you tested it? Do you have any views on on that product? I have had people that used it. I've used other frequency things that were part of my healing journey, and um, 
it's, it's hit or miss for some people. It's really powerful. And for some people it's less powerful for me. Like I tried, for instance, the amp coil, which is like another frequency machine that people use. Right. And that didn't help me as much as something called the bioresonant light. And so, and that one had a, a component of light. Cause we now know light can be healing. And I know Klinghart's been teaching about that. And I've been learning a bit about that, but there's different color lights. There's different lasers. So it's got the frequency on your body plus the lights. So I think it depends like what your body's responding to or what your bigger problem is. Like maybe for some people it's more frequency and maybe for other people, like they just respond to herbs better. Like, I don't know the the answer to that, but I know that some people swear by the amp coil and I didn't feel much at all. Like, so, you know, um, yeah. And then FSM, which is like a much more basic machine that I've used for years on people just for injuries and such, right? Like you can temporarily with someone with a concussion, put a concussion frequency, like healing frequency that resets to get you back. And for like four hours, they feel like they don't have a concussion. And that's from the change, the temporary change in frequency. So the idea is that you keep pushing it into that frequency and then it eventually it gets used to where it's supposed to go. So um, the free medica, the, the, the way that that's beneficial is that you have it on all the time and it's changing frequencies based on which pathogen you're going after. Um, you know, so, um, just like I can't wear an Apple watch cause it hurts my wrist. Like I am EMF sensitive. That has been evident. Someone bought me a gift year years ago when the Apple watch came out, I could not wear that thing. I did not wear it at all. Like I it couldn't. physically hurt your wrists physically ached in my wrist. And I tried it out because like I wanted to wear it. I liked it. It was really convenient. Yeah. No, I wore that thing maybe two or three times. It's not because I understood that EMF and Bluetooth on your body can, is damaging. It's because I, I felt physical pain, just like I felt physical wow. pain when they put that wireless thing on my heart. So, so let's bring now, let's bring the, the EMF conversation we had with the 5g together now with the with the vagal nerve and i'm just wondering like the, the the question that was running through my head when we were segregating these conversations is do you believe you had gotten sick the second time when you were exposed to the 5g plus because it interfered with the success that you were having with managing your gut and the vagal nerve and what happened was now the frequencies were changing and yes. you were yes Yes, I, I, I totally. And I, that's one of the things that changed the frequency, the mold exposure changes the frequency, right? Everything has a frequency, right? Those are just stronger frequencies that we've never, ever had to adapt to. Like 4G is radio waves. Okay. Like we're being microwaved. You know how they say don't stay and stand in front of your microwave. You know, that's like a thing. They're like, don't stand when it's on. Yeah. 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 My brother has a pacemaker and he, when we were younger, he wasn't allowed to use the microwave. And then that changed yeah. over time with newer technology, but we had to be careful with my brother with a lot of these things because of his pacemaker. So yeah, it's, it's, it's interesting, right? Yeah. So now there there's millimeter waves just everywhere. Right. And they're, they're going to be getting like, they have to be for, in order to the, for the full rollout to occur, there has to be every 200 meters, like an accelerator, right? Because it's, it's strong, but it doesn't go far. So like, essentially like, we're being microwaved. So yes, it's powerful changes and it affects your vagus nerve. It affects your entire, every nerve. It affects your calcium channels. That's what makes a nerve fire. That is changing your electricity. What can people do? This is everywhere, right? 5G is everywhere. What can we do to protect ourselves? People that are listening and getting scared. Yeah, what are some sorry. tools you recommend for people? No, no, look, this is important information, <laughs> yeah. but I always like to offer remedies or solutions or potential thoughts on how to how to mitigate the risk of these types of things, right? Yeah, so you want to minimize, obviously, like 
like how close it is to you. So just turning off your Wi-Fi router at night is one simple thing. Keeping all electronics five feet away from you, not just your cell phones, um, but like even fans, anything with a motor is giving off a different kind of voltage, but still that are detrimental. You know, we've had people that are sick and it's like you measure the head of their bed. They didn't realize that behind the head of their bed was the refrigerator was on the other side of the wall and their head's getting literally like fried, right? So you have to like, there's this whole like biological home health thing. Like some people, and, and I've been researching like what's the best like grounding mat or way to ground. And um, there's, there's um, I can't remember what it's called right now, but maybe we can add it to the notes. Um, but it's, um, you know, grounding, creating like a sleep sanctuary. That's like where you live like a quarter of your life, right? like you're sleeping. So if you can get like as little radiation at that time of day, some people, depending on what what's near them, they have to paint certain walls, but that's um, that's going far. Another simple way is to go on the earth and ground extra points for bare feet on the earth. You can touch trees. You can pet dogs that have been running around that don't have those little shoes on because they collect electrons. And then when you pet them and, and you get, you collect electrons from them, your feet on in the water, any bodies of water, right? So like, why do people feel better when they're on vacation? Like you're just touching the earth. You've got the sun, like your circadian rhythm. Um, working on like, for me, like nitric oxide. So I've seen this deplete in people. And this is a huge thing that I, that negates the perioxy nitrites that are, that are, um, from all the damage from calcium, excess calcium, um, is, you know, taking those things that lower or, or, or increase your good nitric oxide. So, um, things like beet, powder, like fermented beets, that kind of stuff, things that increase like blood flow, oxygen, all the things that make you healthy less and, you know, moving your lymph. Um, like there's different, like there are different things that can help you to modulate how intense it is coming at you. So, um, you know, blue shield is one that like I have seen actually like make huge differences for people. Um, there's like a bunch of different companies that are doing that. Um, as Soma Vedic's a little bit different. I, I didn't feel as much like as I did from Blue Shield when I'm trying them out. Um, but that's just an N of one. Um, there's, there's, I'm probably missing something, but those are some of the ways, but uh, oh, GABA, because like we have this increasing glutamate and everything's hyper excitable, right? So use utilizing GABA melatonin, like anything that lowers your toxic load. I'm a big fan of like binders that bind up different radiation that's in our body. Um, so different strains of humic and fulvic acids. Um, um, yeah, just taking a load off the body because our bodies, they're going to have to adapt. Right. It's like, and I think like I was really electrosensitive. Like I told you my hair shocking, everything, my hair standing on edge, like it's, I couldn't go on a plane. Like when you're in a plane, you're in this like metal thing where now Wi-Fi is pinging off and like my heart would go crazy. I thought I was going to die. Like now I can go on a plane, but like I take vitamin C, I take my beet powder nitric oxide little combo. I have like a grounding bracelet that like I, you clip the clip onto like metal on the plane and it'll, it'll discharge from your body. Like, cause there's metal touching you and there's metal clipped onto the plane. And that helped me feel nice and relaxed on the plane. Um, the one thing with that is if the plane is giving off really bad energy, when you clip it, you'll feel it. If you feel worse, you take it off. But most of the time it's helpful. Um, 
you know, there's different shielding clothes that people wear, but, um, that have like silver in them and stuff. But the problem is, is if you're giving off a lot of electricity, cause you're too electric at that time, you actually can close it in and, and feel a little bit worse. So like, you know, it's kind of like when I have the healthy athletes, they wear like the silver containing boxers, they're flying all the time. They're trying to protect, you know, their testicles and whatnot. Um, like, you know, that's, different than someone that's acutely sick. Like sometimes they'll feel like they put a hat on that's like got the silver fibers that block some of the radiation and they might feel worse. So you, you gotta be cognizant of that. When do I know that it's safe to have a child too, right? Because I know plenty of people in this podcast come on and they say, I don't know at what point am I healthy enough to have a child and not risk passing Lyme onto my son or daughter, right? So what is your guidance to people that are listening, feeling better, considering having a child, but anxious about, you know, giving birth yeah. to a child with Lyme disease? Yeah, well, I'm one of those people because I got married in 2020. I got sick in 2021 and, you know, I'm getting out of Lyme. So I'm going to retest myself and make sure my titers are down right? Like, but not, that's not even a, a guaranteed thing. Cause you can have, they can stay high in some people like those antibodies that are showing like you're fighting off Lyme or it's in the like kind of chronic stages. Um, that's what you see when we do the, the vibrant test. But I think like, I think when you feel better and your immune system's balanced, like we were talking about before, like you can have this bacteria and it's not active. It is like hidden. Your immune system is keeping it at bay. It's not transmittable. Mm. Right. So like, and, and plenty of kids are born with Lyme and never will show symptoms of Lyme. It'll just never turn on for them because there's other things. So there's plenty of ways to protect your child once they're born, you know, there's, which that I've dove into, but a lot of the things that make it so it can turn on in babies is just how traumatizing the whole birth in hospitals are like, they do it terribly. They've lost the innate. They don't understand that the body knows a lot of the time. And there's too much intervention, too much intervention, too much antibiotics, too much this, like, you know what I mean? Like, like people aren't like left to what our body actually knows how to do. And sometimes it needs a little bit of help, but yeah. So, I mean, I don't have the clear answer for that, but for me personally, so I've been doing live blood cell with someone who in the live blood cell can show you if there's Borrelia, Babesia, Lyme, that's like procreating active there, how many cells. So that's been one way that where I saw my Lyme is completely down. What's still left for me is a bit of Bartonella, right? So it doesn't look like the Lyme is like showing its head right now, right? So, and there's that. And then I'm going to redo the vibrant labs and I'm going to make sure I feel good. I feel strong. Like I feel like, you know, and then along with like the regular blood work, urine tests, all of that. And in like, I don't know, trust your body that it's, that it's ready when you feel healthy enough. But like, I mean, I see people getting pregnant during Lyme by accident, you know, and their kids are, we, we're helping them along with like little things, but they're healthy and, and we're using things to support their immune system. And we're using things to like lower their parasitic load and like, you know, making sure they're nutrient dense and like all of that kind of stuff is going to, is going to protect them grounding them, getting them in the sun, like all of the things that like, you know, help us a lot that don't cost anything. I want to pull you into another one of the controversial topics. You've been so good on so many different things. And you used um, antibiotics on your journey. Uh, it sounds like you use antibiotics on your journey a couple of times. And I'm just wondering what your feelings are about the impact that antibiotics were having on your, on your gut 
uh, and the impact that you think that may have had in the short term with helping to reduce the microbe load, but perhaps in the long term, uh, making you more vulnerable to immune dysfunction and ultimately the chronic illness. Yeah, well, I mean, I don't consider myself chronically ill, even though I am, because like, I just don't want to put myself into that bucket because I feel like it's like a huge thing. I'm I'm healing and I'm going to be healed just like I was for the last 12 years and I'm going to know more than ever. And I'm, my body's going to be strong, but, um, now I forget. That, that's, a, that's, that's a brilliant <laughs> mindset. It really is. And so I, so let, let's, let's get away from the labels and let's talk about, you know, Oh, the, the antibiotics. interventions, right? Because you, you, yeah. spoke, um, you know, I was desperate. I was desperate or else I would have never, like, I, I hadn't taken an antibiotic since 12 years ago when I was sick, I had had pride in how good my gut was and all of that, but you know, it didn't overtly affect me in a negative way this time. And like, but like, you know, that was like right at the beginning in November, like actually December. Cause I, there was a lag because no one would give it to me and it really helped me. And it was really hard. And I had people that are in the natural world muscle testing me. So that's using frequency and quantum physics and, and seeing if it's something that can work with you. And there were people that I trusted going, you need to do this. This is what your body's asking for at times. So I think that there's a time and a place for anything. And if you asked me that before this happened to me in November, I'd be like, we could do it without it. We can, Oh, who do you think you are? And I, I just think I'm humbled. <laughs> you, you got to let go yeah, of certain uh -huh. things. But that's yeah. I, I think I think we should all be agnostic about treatment. We should we should <laughs> using what works for us. But but you know antibiotics is, is you know it, it is it is it is a flashpoint for many people in this community. But long term antibiotic use I don't think is helpful. I don't think you're getting to the root cause if you still need it. I used it for the I used it for twelve days and then I stopped. I actually did use another pharmaceutical um, ivermectin which which was a huge game changer for my health. It helped me a lot, um, like get me over humps and, you know, cause, and I also got um, like COVID while I was still getting over Lyme. So it, I feel like it saved me like a lot of grief and trouble. So I ended up doing that for one month along with doing all my herbs and stuff. And I'll tell you, I wasn't able to handle certain herbs until I lowered my load enough of pathogens with I think the ivermectin or modulating my immune system. Cause then I could take all the herbs I needed to after I kind of flash kind of killed the superficial stuff that was making me so reactive. And it opened up for me an ability to treat myself in a way that I couldn't, when I was trying to do the herbs, they were just stirring it, this stuff up. They were making me feel worse. I felt like they triggered my symptoms more. I thought, you know, I thought I would never get better. So, um, uh, well, like it felt like that in the moment, but I always knew I'd get better, but, um, yeah, so that's where I was at that point in time. I mean, try and stay away from those, like at all causes, but, um, I, like costs, but it literally within moments took my heart pain away that I was suffering for almost three weeks with. So, you know, it felt like the right thing at that time. So you had, you had anticipated the next question I was going to ask you, because one of the things that we've often talked with, for example, Dr. Rawls about, uh, both Matt and I are on the Restore Kit, and we have been for several years, is balancing herbs with uh, with antibiotics. And then, of course, I wanted to talk to you about the probiotic piece, So, because when people are making the decision, again, agnostically, you know, we yeah. are not anti-antibiotic. We are not. Matt took IV antibiotics, and it was a necessary part of his journey, right? And we've yeah. had many, many guests on this on this podcast who have said that they do not believe that they would have they, they would have overcome their challenges if if antibiotics were not a part of the treatment protocol. Yeah. 
but we understand that there's there's an upside and a downside to the antibiotic piece. So if it is something that people are going to consider using and it does have its virtues, in your case and Matt's case, both um, both have it. Are there other pieces of this that you can use to offset what are the negative elements of using that? And part of it is herbal, and you've already touched on that. It, it, I'm not surprised you were smart enough to anticipate my question, but, uh, but I also want you to talk to us about um, probiotics and any other interventions you can use to offset any of the negative elements on the gut when using antibiotics. Yeah. So we always use like a spore-based probiotic and maybe with a little bit of Saccharomyces and um, probiotic strains that have the, the GPMAF. Um, so um, like that's how we're supporting. Anytime you take one within a few hours, we're trying to re-inoculate. We're eating resistant starches, the ones that you can handle like different soluble fibers. Like, um, you know, we're using gut immune things to help for leaky gut. So like, uh, serum immunoglobulins, sometimes colostrum, if people can handle it, like there's a lot of ways to protect your gut. while if it, when it's necessary in the short term to go on an antibiotic, um, and then, you know, again, the humming, gar gargling, all the frequency stuff, like it really does help the good microbiome, red light on the gut, on the, just anything, anything to. to I, I wanted to take you on one more, one more uh, topic area. And I promise, Matt, I'll let you, I know you have a billion questions to ask Dr. Steph. Um, uh, we, we, we did a podcast on wearables uh, recently, and uh, we, we, um, we really thought that might be a game changer. And at the time that, uh, that we did the podcast on the wearables, uh, because there was this, there's a Stanford University professor who was able to diagnose, self-diagnose himself with Lyme disease based on having all of this wearable data that he had and then seeing, and then seeing <laughs> the, the, you know, the difference in, in the data, which led him to a Lyme diagnosis. And at the time I was wearing wearing an O-ring and I had been, I, it was a Christmas gift and I was, I was using it for uh, quite some time. And what I was finding quite frankly, when I was wearing the O-ring and I didn't really understand it until you just talked about the impact that wearing the Apple watch was having on you was that I was much more inflamed and it was interfering with my sleep. And I really, I thought initially it was, initially I thought it was, um, you know, it was just having a, you know, an emotional impact on me. And you know, like, I'd get up to go to the bathroom because, you know, old people go to the bathroom at night and then I'd be like, freaking out because my sleep score was going to be bad. And, you know, and, and I really thought it was emotional. I stopped wearing it and my sleep improved radically. My inflammation was reduced. And, and I really believe that, and I'm, I may be like you, that I'm sensitive. My electro may be sensitive to having these wearables. So you know, can you talk to us a little bit more about, about the impact that wearables may be having on us and, and, and maybe wearables are wonderful, you know, to provide us with data streams that can take, that can give us baselines, but maybe when we're sick, wearables may not be a good thing because it could have an impact on our electrome and, and it may, it may quite frankly, um, you know, be immunosuppressive. Yeah. Um, I, I don't love any wearables again, short-term to get some information. I'm, I'm definitely okay with, but it is, it's just a, it's a novel frequency. It's a, a frequency going through your body that is not human, right? Like, and, and, and it's right on your body and some people don't feel it because they're less sensitive to it. So I get people to really start to like be body aware 
like, so I start to explain to them like how it feels when a certain organ is affected. And like, for instance, like even peeing in the middle of the night, it could be detoxing through your kidneys. Right. And people will get that more when they have like electromagnetic kind of frequencies going through them. So, um, I think to collect some information is okay. But I think if you really think about it when you're sick and you have that toxic load and you're already kind of like an antenna and you're already like got this toxic soup and there's metals, there's sometimes there's iron overload. Sometimes there's mercury or lead. There's always a heavy metal component, I think, because biofilms are made from metal. So even when you're breaking them down, those things that are holding them together are different metals. So you're literally like, you know, you're attracting even more of these kind of frequencies when you have those toxic overloads. And when you're working through things like, again, I used like dark fields and, and live blood cell microscopy a lot. So I went in and I had an injection in an interference field with the procaine and I felt terrible, brought all my symptoms back. I didn't take enough binders, but I just happened to have like the, uh, dark field, um, appointment the next day. So we look at my bloodstream and it is full. He's looking at me going, how are you sitting up with this many metals right now floating around in your body? And I could, I peed every five seconds. Like you'd think I didn't just pee. My bladder was completely full again. And that's your body trying to filter out these metals. And then he showed me the biofilms and here are these huge biofilms that are backing up in my, but you see the rest of the metals. He's like, stop breaking down anything else. If you have any more metal in your bloodstream, you're going to like cause yourself even more issues. So I took a metal binder for like a few days, knowing it was that. And boom, my symptoms went straight down again, went back. The metals were out of my bloodstream, was able to go back to breaking down biofilms going. To... So metals is, is huge. When you're sick, there's a metal component because all the bugs are hiding in biofilms. And when they're when you're sick, they're coming out of their biofilms. Like they are, you know, so you're having to deal with a lot of metal. You're, you're literally a transponder for more electricity. So just keep as much off your body as you can is my advice. But what brings the, the, the metals into, so for you, what do you think the trigger was to bring all these metals into your blood? Right. I mean, that's, that's, that's kind of wild that you, you were flooded with these metals. Is it just the environment? Is it just the world we live in? Yeah. I mean, I don't know, like we're talking about controversial things. So chemtrails, there's tons of aluminum coming down on us. Like we were all injected with aluminum as children, like in, in vaccines, there's aluminum in Pepto-Bismol, which a lot of people took when they were like, you know, we cook on aluminum. There's, there's that there's that's screwing up people's frequencies. That's present in everyone that has Lyme diseases. There's like some sort of aluminum overload. So like metals are huge. Like, I don't think that any of these things exist like on their own. Um, we're exposed to mercury. It's in our food. It's in our thing. But when the, when the chemtrails come back down to the earth, there's like tons of different metals in them. So we're breathing it in, like we're, you know, swimming on the water. It's laying on the top of the water. We're, like it's, we're inundated. We have we're, like heavy metals are part of what makes up like the scaffolding of a biofilm. So like we all have them, it's just different rates, but when you're sick, there is a heavy metal component as far as, as far as I'm concerned. All right. So, but talk to us about the binders for metals. Cause now that we know metals are very common in people with chronic Lyme disease, what are some binders people can use to help get rid of all the metals that are in their blood and allow their bodies to heal and, and start the process of getting rid of this toxicity in their body. Yeah. Um, some people like I use all oral binders. Like I don't have the capacity to do IVs or anything like that. So like what I'm suggesting is usually oral binders, which works because you're, like I said, your gut is like a huge place where even like binders, like humic and fulvic humic acid, not fulvic humic. It's like, um, 
doesn't cross into the bloodstream, but it stays there in the gut and it can absorb stuff from the bloodstream that's in contact with the sides of the, of the, um, gut lining. Um, but there's different clays that, that bind up metals. Um, and you can get more specific, which with what, what aspects of clays are like, there's a MANC, which is a, an aspect of cliptopinite, which is from zeolite, but the MANC is very specific to metals and histamine, right? So histamine, you're like, so you just start to learn more about that. Um, but there's, there's different sizes and shapes of humic and fulvics. So that kind of carbon technology that get heavy metals. So say we use something called HMET binder, there's silica, silica is going to be better for aluminum. There's um, you, you know, there's pectisol, there's like all these different ones that you, you can use that bind up more metals. And then there's ones that bind up better, like the biological toxins. So, um, yeah. And then always like supporting the liver at the same time and the kidneys, right. Because they're going to have to filter these metals out for you. The ones that don't get bound up to the binders. So you also brought a biofilms and you wrote it metals. You said metals are the scaffolding or metals are really the base that create these biofilms. We recently had Dr. Mc, uh, Dr. McDonald on, Dr. Alan McDonald, and he talked about biofilms. And then we had Dr. Sh uh, Shapi on who really discovered biofilm in Lyme patients. And they believe biofilms are one of the most evil parts of Lyme disease because they allow Lyme to hide they exchange genetic material with other pathogens. They then can come out, as you noted, Dr. Steph, when you're sick, they come out of the biofilm and make you even sicker. They hide from your immune system. They have these little, these little, she described them as like fingers that can come out and, and communicate and almost text message each other from biofilm to biofilm. Are you of the same thought that these biofilms are a really major problem in overcoming chronic illness, chronic Lyme disease and tick-borne illnesses? Because they protect these pathogens from our immune system and the drugs that we use or the, or the herbs that we use to treat tick-borne illnesses? Um, yeah, I think that they're a big way that they evade the immune system, sit there and continue to create inflammation, um, you know, kind of hijack the whole situation. And then it's a big missed part. And then they get worse based on certain antibiotics, right? Because the bugs are smart and then they're like, oh no. And then they, you know, get in a little community and, and form a like, you know, protective layer on themselves. Um, so I think it's a missed part because I, and I know you need to break them down to then, you know, your immune system, it's easy for your immune system to kill a bug. Like it knows how to do that. Right. So, but it's just like how many get released. So you have to be like low and slow with the, with the breaking down of biofilms, like, you know, where for me too much got released at one time. So that's just something that, I feel like people have to be ready for Like, I feel like they biofilm bust too early. Sometimes you have to get the more free floating stuff and then slowly chip away at those kind of deeper things. So go, go after the bloodborne pathogens first and then start to go after the biofilm and the deeper stuff you're saying. Yeah. Like the go after the superficial, like more accessible kind of bugs, right. Take a load off the body for that and then start to break down the biofilm and it can kind of keep up with those extra pathogens. What's a good approach if people feel they're ready to start going after biofilm? What's a good tool you use herbally or pharmaceutical that can help address these biofilms? Because if we don't get to these biofilms, we know when we're susceptible or weak, they're just going to, all these bugs are going to come out again and make us really sick, right? So how do we address that? Yeah. I mean, there's gentler ways to break down biofilms, like, or even low doses of things. So like, if you're doing like a systemic enzyme, you don't go straight to like 12. I've had people come to me and they've created like 
they've made their health health worse because someone told them like, oh, you got to go high on the biofilms so, or the systemic enzymes. So just like starting low and slow, that's a big part of our thing. That's how I treated my own body. Um, you know, juncular things like NAC, there's like some essential oils that, that um, essential oil blends that like Supreme, I think it's Supreme nutrition has. Um, so like, and again, we try to like muscle test. So we're not guessing. I know it's not like a perfect science, but it's something right. It's already, we already have like the information from the testing. And then it's kind of like, you know, if we can get like just some inkling of what's going to work for them. So that's kind of, um, a big part of choosing which kind of biofilm buster and what dose and all of that. I want to bounce over to the gut again, because one of the things we've heard from a lot of doctors and even some researchers has been this emerging, I, I will call it emerging, but it's becoming more and more popular, the concept of a fecal implant for people with Lyme disease or people that have microbiome disturbances or imbalances. <laughs> and we had one person on this podcast who said he had a fecal implant and it was life-changing for him. We had people that come on and say, hey, look, if your gut microbiome is totally out of whack, you can get somebody like a, a sibling and do a fecal implant and it can have powerful effects on your healing. I mean, what are your thoughts on that? It sounds so gross, but I mean, people are, you know, we get desperate and there are things we want to try. I mean, do you think it's safe? Do you think it's something people should be weary of? I think, I mean, I, you know, you've heard the few horror stories about it, but I think overreaching it's safe when they do the proper testing for the host. Right. And, um, but it's, uh, yeah, it, I mean, it's a, it can make huge changes very fast. Like, I mean, I had someone with like advanced, um, advanced colitis that had that done, like not much was like moving the needle for her. And it was like a game changer. She was like a new person, like solid bowel movements, like for the first time in like 14 years, like, you know, like less anxiety, like she felt like a new person it's we don't understand yet like the microbiome like even close to what the, there is tons of potential there um but i've heard of people that got them that weren't so good and it like completely changed their personality like for the negative but i know those are more rare and i think they're like you know i i think it's i've tried to get people to get them here but it's like impossible there's like just one study going on in canada like so they have to go to the states and then this guy won't do it unless you've had like a diagnosis of clostridium because that's like what they're using it for so um i think it's promising um i know that they're encapsulating it now and you take it orally and it's in like a coated um enteric coated so that it doesn't break open into lower in the bowel so that it doesn't infect you but um like obviously I, I don't know too much about those ones. The rest that I know people are doing them rectally, but it's wild. Like I had an autistic patient that got one and spoke like the day after, like wild. It's, it's, there's a lot that we can harness in there that we should be spending our time like researching as opposed to like, I don't know, a Parkinson's drug that meanwhile, you know, Parkinson's and Alzheimer's is not going to be fixed by a drug because it's like a multi-system disorder, Lyme, blah, blah, blah. Right. So you're like, just stop spending all the money there, like focus on where there's actual potential. And that's, that's the gut for sure. So a lot of people listen to this podcast do struggle with their hormones, right? It's a very common thing with Lyme disease, hormones, nervous system regulation. So what do you do with your, your clients and patients when you, when you really have somebody who's extremely anxious, extremely depressed, or just feel that their hormones are out of balance ever since getting Lyme disease. What are some tips and tricks you can recommend to our listeners? Um, 
So, I mean, we do lots of things like to see like where the hormones are kind of off and if you need to help them detox estrogen or, you know, just like vitamin E or whatever it is, like we are looking at like the bowel and are they recirculating all of these hormones? Is that part of the issue? And so we work a lot on the gut to help the hormones. We work a lot on it's detox, get the crap out, like, like a castor oil pack, getting the lymph moving. I know this doesn't sound like what you want to hear. I mean, as far as like neurotransmitters, I use GABA a ton to calm people down. Um, I use vagal nerve stim. I use, um, and then I work with a practitioner who does like LDA, LDI, LDA, LDI stuff for hormones. So some people are reacting to their own progesterone, their own estrogen or, you know, but I don't do any like hormone replacement or anything like that. Um, I feel like when you lower the toxic load, the hormones start to balance out. Um, and then, I mean, we use like desiccated organs at times, like just to help people, like if it's thyroid that's off, but like, you know, are you talking about sex hormones or just hormones in general? Uh, in general, I mean, you know, we had, we had, we had Dr. Uh, Moron and uh, Jabin Warren, he was saying how he, you know, the first symptom was he had no sex drive, right? He just, he had, he, oh, and, yeah. and, and so I think that's really, that's really powerful for some men that, that are having that potential symptom and others who just have hormones that they feel like, you know, they're crying all the time or yeah. they're anxious or they're fearful, but the, the sexual side of it as well. I mean, people, you know, listen to this podcast generally experience a lot of those things that are common with Lyme, both the sexual hormones and, and just the emotional hormones. Yeah. I mean, decreasing histamine helped my hormones and I've used that a lot because of the whole estrogen histamine connection. But yeah, like when you feel sick and you're toxic, you don't feel like having sex because sex is procreating and your body doesn't care to procreate when it's just trying to stay alive. So, you know, as you heal, your sex drive comes back and that's that's happening for a reason. You don't want to get your sex drive back first. And like, that's not what it's meant. It's you need to heal first. So I'm not, I'm not you like, I know some people use replacement or they do pregnenolone and they do, I, I don't, I, I don't mess. I don't mess with that because I feel like that there's a reason I, I help people with their anxiety and, um, you know, I help them get the bad stuff out. And then that's when I think that the hormones regulate, unless there's like something where their thyroid's been removed in the past, or, you know, there's like a real reason for, for replacement, but like, I'm more, I had no sex drive whatsoever, but as I start to get healthier, does that change? Yes. So it's, it's a protective mechanism. So that's my kind of view on it. So what are your thoughts on the lymphatic system? Because something else we've heard a lot of people talk about with, you know, your, your, you have your lymphatic system and then you have your lymphatic system in your brain that, that will essentially detox pathogens in your brain. And we know it's hard to get through the blood brain barrier for many people. So if you have Lyme in the brain, if you have, you know, parasites in the brain, that could be causing a lot of neural symptoms as well. Do you think that addressing the gut indirectly impacts your brain health and can eliminate pathogens in your brain? Or do you think it's something else that you have to look at separately to address, you know, maybe something like, like brain inflammation or, you know, nematodes in the brain and Lyme in the brain and things like that? I mean, I think that influencing the rest of the body and influencing the immune system and we know again, how much our gut is influencing the brain based on the vagus nerve alone that, that I think that the power is there for you fix your whole body. We're never just targeting one area. And when your immune system regulates your gut, anything that makes your brain leaky, it's the same chemical that makes your gut leaky. Right. So, so 
the way that you, you start to heal the gut, you can heal, heal the blood brain barrier. Um, and you know, we use like anti-inflammatories that we know cross the blood brain barrier, like anything to take the load off the brain, but I had it across my brain. Did I not? I had MS. I had, I had plaques, right. I had neurological symptoms. I had neurological Lyme. Um, and I got better without anything specific for my brain. Right. Like in like getting the lymph moving. So it's not backed up. Like if you think about your lymph drains, like, you know, mostly here through your collarbones under your, that's where your thoracic duct on, on the left-hand side or the lymphatic ducts are both emptying. So anything that backs up, backs up onto your vagus nerve. And then anything that backs up, that's not going to allow lymphatic drainage. Right. So you get the rest of the lymph moving and then your brain's going to be able to drain. Hmm. I've never heard it explained that way before. That's really interesting. I mean, that's, you know, not a lot of people know about the lymphatic system. I think it's, it really is a downstream effect. If you can heal the rest of your body, get your lymphatic system going and heal your gut indirectly, you're going to be able to address any pathogens in your brain, inflammation in your brain and overcome some of those hurdles as well. Yeah. Your body it's, that's where I think the immune modulation part comes in. Like once you can start to clear out toxins and, you know, a lot of your toxins do build up. They go right here. What's right here, your vagus nerve stress, all of that. That's why lymphatics are, is such a big part. And Lyme is a known lymphatics clogger. So, you know, it's a huge part. And then your lymphatics are a byproduct of all of that. So you just got to get it all flowing. That's what I talk about for fluid mechanics in the whole body. The fourth phase of water, when you're healthy, you're, you're, it's like, a gel. Like if you look at the water under a microscope, like it's different, it's a different complete form. And that's the way that it moves through your body. So my final question before Rich picks it up to just conclude with you here is we we hear about parasites all the time. And some people, you know, we know parasites are a real problem, but why do you think some people will do parasite cleanses and they can never seem to get rid of parasites and the, the symptoms persist, the parasites keep coming out of them. You know, what do you think could be going on there in their bodies that makes their bodies a hospitable place for these parasites? And they just keep, it's just this vicious cycle of, of pain and misery trying to get rid of them. So your parasites are there because there's a toxic load that feeds them. They hold, they hold like hundred times their weight in, in pathogens and toxins. And just like when candida shows up and it's overgrown, like there's usually something there fueling them. Right. So, you know, we talked about heavy metals. We talked about like, there's mold is changing the whole like, uh, gut microbiome. So it's like, you're not getting the other things. That's why it's like, when you kill a parasite, it's giving off metals and it's giving off all the other biological toxins. And then if you don't sop them up or get them out, then it's just like a, a slippery slope. Like it just repeats itself, right? The, the pathogens can grow back when you're not actively killing because they're the, they're the, the environment is, is feeding them. They're there for a reason it's toxic load. So again, it's not just the parasites you've got to, there's always a metal component. I don't want to overgeneralize, but I used to think that like, I listened and I love Klingheart, but I'm like, everyone doesn't have Lyme. Like he's like, everyone who has chronic symptoms has Lyme bottom line. And I was like, no, no, you know? And like, and then, so I'm not trying to overgeneralize, but there is like a toxic load. There's radiation. We know radiation like makes more mold. So you've got to, you've got to get rid of these, these, these things. That's why binders are my best friend. And what I a big part of what gets my patients through their kind of Lyme journey and for myself as well. 
So, Dr. Capistrano, I'm really sorry you went on this terrible journey. I mean, it really, really sucks that you had to go through everything that you went through. But there's been some good that's come out of this, right? Uh, I mean, you've learned a lot about you and you've learned about your gifts and you've learned a lot about how you can treat Lyme patients in a way that you never would have if you didn't go on this journey yourself. So talk to us about that part of your journey. And then I want to talk to you about uh, how folks can get in touch with you and and what are the different ways that you can work with them. But let's say with the first piece first, which is um, which is what, what has been the blessing that's come out of this for you personally, and what has been the blessing that's come out of this for your patients? Oh, I found like another mentor for me that has taught me a lot. Um, just like the mentor I had for when I was doing manual practice, um, and he was the one helping me with neural therapy. Unfortunately, I can't name him on here because neural therapy is a gray area everywhere, but um, that was a blessing. And then everything I've learned from my own body, from what he's taught me, from what other practitioners have taught me, from the, my understanding of energy and energy fields. And um, and just like, I, I always say ignorance is not bliss. Like, I want to know, I want to know like the reason why I want to know, like, I want it to make sense, like make it make sense. You know, I feel like I went through the whole Western medical system when I was in when I was younger and I even had to go to emergency like five or six times and the amount that they don't understand the body. And I don't want to be like overreaching in general, but every single practitioner that I saw does not understand the body at all. It is frightening. They told me I was perfectly healthy. I was livid. I'm like, it's 4am. I'm in the hospital. My heart rate is 150 at rest. My, my blood pressure is 200 over hundred. I feel like I'm going to blow a gasket. And literally because it was coming in waves, they told me it was a panic attack. It was, you know, anyways, so it was just, it's just even more empowering. Ignorance is not bliss. You got to learn and understand. And that's the empowering part. So I believe that the body can heal from all of these things coming at us. I'm not trying to inundate fear. When I say this does this, I'm trying to give you knowledge and knowledge is power and in empowering yourself you can heal yourself. So that's, that's what I've had to relearn. Cause I was, I was scared again. Right. And I, and I see now I, there's always an answer. There's always an answer for, especially for the, the Lyme world and what we've gone through. And it's just, you have to find what your answer is. And so we just always give people so many options and we're just always educating them and explaining to them, what does this thing do to your body when you take it? Why is it so important? So they can understand what could this one do? What do I have to look out for? That's what, that's what I learned from going through this myself. What, what can happen when I put this thing in my body? Like, what is it doing? The more you understand, the better your, your body can heal too. Like when the subconscious comes in with the conscious, I think. So you know, one of the things that we're often asked is um, what type of a practitioner um, someone should work with, right? And we, of course, always urge, urge folks to work with a Lyme literate doctor. Uh, but if, if we have our druthers, we also urge uh, that uh, folks work with someone who has been on the journey because there is just a unique perspective that you have when you've been on the journey um you know how much someone can take when they should pivot there is just so many different pieces of this that quite frankly you just can't learn 
regardless of where your educational um, you know, experiences come from, you just can't learn from anything other than experience. So again, I, I feel terribly that you and your family had to go on this journey uh, together. But, um, but you know, one of the reasons we want to urge folks to work with you is because you've had this experience that, you know, that you, you just can't learn otherwise, or you can't learn from otherwise. Uh, so talk a little bit about that, and then please share with our folks how they could work with you, um, you know, in, uh, in their journey. Yeah. So, um, you know, everyone that helped me has either been through the journey there or they had a close, close, close family member that they helped through the journey that they it put all in for in order to help them. So I think that that is a key thing. I think a lot of the little intricacies are just hard to learn from a book or from an explanation if you haven't lived it. Um, now I think that there's those super, super experienced people that just like are smart and, and I like think that they're amazing that they can come up with what they come up with, um, based on other people's experiences. And I think they're deeply caring. So I think like you need to know when to give up on a practitioner. That's the most important thing. Or like they should never shut down other ideas that you have. They should never say, oh, that doesn't work if there's something that worked for you. Um, you know, they should refer out. They shouldn't, I, I, I think refer out. I mean, I think you need a few hands in the bucket to be doing. I don't think everyone's doing everything that helps for Lyme. So they should have like a referral center because, or like, a community where, you know, someone has to look at your mouth and someone has to like, you know, there, if you're not, especially if you're not getting better or if it's like really chronic or whatever, you know? Um, so I, I think that that tells a lot. So, and I think you just have to know when to like pivot or if it feels right, trust your intuition, but you, you need to start, you need to make gains. If you're not starting to feel better then something's wrong. Right. That's that's my biggest well, thing. And, but you also, you know, Dr. Steph, you have to have a practitioner, right? I mean, one of the things that, you know, Matt and I are often, um, you know, confronted with is, you know, we, you know, we hear this concept, you have to become your own doctor. And, you know, and we strongly disagree with that. You, you, you certainly want to respond with ability. You certainly want to be inquisitive and you want to learn as much of, about your body as you can. And you have to, you know, you want to learn how to use your onboard diagnostic system. And you certainly want to, you want to, present that to your practitioners, but you have to be in a relationship with practitioners in order to be able to get through this. And, and, and that's yeah. one of the reasons why we like to have, um, you know, a diversity of practitioners on our, on our podcast so that folks can learn in depth about you and, 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 and see if, uh, you know, what you're saying resonates with them so they can find a practitioner. But, you know, I, I mean, give, give me some give me feedback on that. I mean, yeah, I think you would probably agree with us that you have to have a practitioner. Well, I'm a practitioner and I had a main practitioner. I had multiple people helping me. Like, I think I, I, I don't, and I'm a practitioner. And like, so say I'm saying, seeing someone and before when I'm a chiropractor and I heard that they saw another great chiropractor, like, I feel like I do an even better job than it's human nature. So like, I think that, that the, the key is having like a couple good practitioners to be honest. And like, even better if they will communicate with each other. But I think that like, I got tons of help from this person in one way, this person in one way. Like, so I'm not saying jump around practitioners. I'm saying find people you trust that maybe have like a different approach and then combine. Cause I think it's a combined approach. I just, just so not straightforward. And, you know, any practitioner that's being honest with you is going to tell like what worked for one person is not going to work. None of us fit in this like one box where everything works. 
for, for you. So I just think being open, knowing when to pivot, your practitioner should know when to pivot. Your practitioner should have a, a, a bunch of practitioners that they are bouncing ideas off of. I think that's what makes a good practitioner. So give us the last piece. You've been really kind to be with us. Even though you were sick, you came on the podcast and <laughs> fought through this and you got grilled by me and Matt who are wine <laughs> geeks beyond, uh, beyond uh, the description. Uh, and you've just been absolutely brilliant. So how, how can folks work with you? What are the different ways that you make yourself available to folks in Canada, folks in the States? And we have an international audience, so folks who would like to work with you uh, in Europe and in Asia who also are uh, uh, listening to this podcast. Yeah, so we have a virtual practice. And so we send a lot of test kits to people. We can guide them from where we are. We've created a directory um, of people in different cities because I've worked with a lot of NHL players. So there's all the NHL cities. I got to know a lot of practitioners there. Like we're kind of, so we can help out like people in the UK, Australia was kind of hard, but because of, you know, time zone and this and that, but you know, we'll, we'll try to make it work for, for anyone. Um, but yeah, we, uh, vegasclinic.com is our website. Um, Dr. S. Canistrero is my uh, personal uh, Instagram. And then Vegas Clinic is our our company Instagram. Um, and we also do, a t we're, we're training a team, but we have a team of people that do the manual therapy as, as well. So we do like mobile for that. That was part of the whole Vegas nerve wandering, nerve wandering kind of clinic because we realize how important that structural part is as well. Like the manual um, aspect of, of healing and yeah, we're, we're, we're very flexible to try to help people however we can. And we're really honest with you as to if it's a good fit. So folks, we're also going to have uh, show notes for this podcast episode where all of the different links are there. And then we're also going to be putting Dr. Canisero on our practitioner page, and there'll be a lengthy description of of the work that she does and and what she um, and and how you can get in touch with her. So there'll be a lot of different uh, connections that will be made through this uh, podcast on our platform that will uh, allow you to work with Dr. Steph as well. So uh, we we can't thank you enough for sharing uh, so much of uh, the brilliant information you shared with us. Uh, you've given us so much to think about, and 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 it's pretty rare that you know Matt and I are you know are, are learning as much as we did on this podcast. I mean, you really opened our eyes to so much. So uh, we can't thank you enough. For what you're doing for the community generally, what you've done for our folks by coming on and, and sharing your brilliance and, and of course what you're doing uh, for your patients. You too, guys, all the stuff that you're doing, sharing and bringing, shedding light to this. Cause as you said, people feel so isolated as they're going through all of this. So kudos to you guys as well. Thank you so much. Thank you for listening to our Tick Bootcamp interview with our guest, Dr. Stephanie Conestrero. To our listeners, we have a call to action. First, if you'd like to learn more about Dr. Stephanie, Visit our Instagram at dr.sconestrero. Again, that's dr.sconestrero. You can also visit our website at vegasclinic.com. That's V-A-G-U-S-C-L-I-N-I-C.com. Second, if you've enjoyed this episode of our Tick Bootcamp podcast, please share it with your friends on social media. Third, Tick Bootcamp has created a Tick by Blueprint that has been inspired by the information that has been shared with us by past podcast guests. We urge you to visit our website at tickbootcamp.com slash bite to view our blueprint. Fourth, don't forget to subscribe to this podcast on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or Spotify to get your automatic episode updates of our Tick Bootcamp podcast. Please take a minute to leave us an honest review on your podcast platform of choice. And finally, 
If you'd like to search our podcast library of over 350 episodes, subscribe to our email list, or share feedback, please visit our website at kickbootcamp.com. Thank you, as always, for listening.